Okay. So uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, and what I'd like to do, uh, just both as a way of reminder for those of you who've been here every week, but also as a way of introduction, to perhaps if you're new this morning, is just to give a bit of background uh, where we've been in the book and then uh, how it brings us to where we're at here in chapter 8. So I know that John mentioned... Um, that actually the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. And so there's a, a united message that they are proclaiming. And uh, if you look at the structure of these books, Ezra chapters 1 through 6 speak about the restoration of the temple. And they talk about the people who came back from exile under the leader Zerubbabel. So we have the subject of a leader of God's people, uh, and bringing the people to restore something, which in this case is to restore the temple. In Ezra chapters 7 through 10, then we read about Ezra coming, and his object is to restore both the law of God and to build up the community or the people of God. And so we have yet a, another leader uh, bringing about another restoration movement. And then, of course, you've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, the first seven chapters, and this is all about God calling Nehemiah to come back to Jerusalem and to restore or rebuild the walls. So in the first three sections of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have three separate leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and we have three separate efforts of restoration, restoration of the temple, restoration of the law and the community, restoration of the walls, which comes to a completion at the end of Nehemiah chapter 7, which gets us to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, as John pointed out last week, Nehemiah chapter 7 is rather interesting in that it is a list of the returning exiles, and this very same list is found in Ezra chapter 2. So what's that about? Why do we have this list in Ezra chapter 2 and have it repeated again in Nehemiah 7? And this is actually an ancient technique of blocking off a set of material and saying these things go together. And uh, whatever it is at the beginning, whether it's a list or a, or a story or a paragraph, and then a, a repetition of that same thing, it acts as sort of a parenthesis around that block of scripture. So really, from the beginning of Ezra to Nehemiah chapter 7, uh, we have this block of scripture where we have these three leaders and the various things that God has called them to do to bring restoration, which again gets us to Nehemiah chapter 8. And so Nehemiah chapter 8 is in many ways uh, a new beginning or a new section to the story here. And it's actually a very happy section. And it raises the question... Now that the temple has been restored, now that Ezra has come and restored the law and built up the community of God's people, now that the walls have been rebuilt, how will the people respond? And so as we uh, begin this morning to look at these first 12 verses, we find in fact a really great response by the people. It's a very happy section of scripture to be able to teach this morning as we notice the people's response to hearing the word of God. 
And there's a lot of great uh, messages in here. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read the passage with you, and then we'll pray. Uh, and then I'm going to go verse by verse through these 12 verses, okay? So let's read it together. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate by morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on the platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand were all of these fellows whose names I'm not going to pronounce. <laughs> and so we come to verse five. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, we have another group of men. Uh, we skip down to the middle of the verse. These are Levites, and they helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, this is a great text that speaks about your word, hearing your word in response to your word, which is what we seek to do every time we gather together like this. And so, Father, I pray that you will instruct us today and that you will give us understanding as you uh, sought to give the people here in Ezra and Nehemiah's day understanding. May you speak to our hearts, Lord, uh, and may you apply your word in, in a very special way that only you can, Lord, because only you know everything that is going on in our lives, the challenges that we face, uh, the circumstances we confront. And so we ask, Father, that you would come and minister by the power of your Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's back up to verses 1 and 2. And if you have an, an outline, if you have the sermon notes in front of you this morning, uh, you'll notice that the, the title of the message overall is Restoration Through Oneness and the Word. And our first topic is the importance of the oneness of God's people. 
one of the things that impressed me as I looked over this passage was how many times the word people occurs. In these 12 verses, the word people occurs 13 times. And the expression, all the people, occurs a total of nine times. So there's an emphasis here on the community of God's people. And there's also an emphasis on the oneness of God's people. In the very first verse, we read that the people gathered together as one in the open square. And we continue to read this expression, all the people, all the people, all the people. And so there's a great deal of emphasis on God's people as a family, as a community. And one of the things that we are told is that those who have gathered together are both men, women, and all of those uh, children who were of an age to be able to understand. So again, this is the total community of God's people. There are times in our lives when it's good to break up into various groups. Uh, for instance, we've sent the, the kids off to uh, morning Sunday school so that they can be taught at, at their level. We have men's group, women's group, youth groups, uh, university groups, and, and on and on, because each group has particular uh, challenges and concerns at that particular age. But the scripture also teaches us that we're one body, aren't we? We're one family in God. And one of the things that I love about the emphasis here of the oneness is that it, it tells us that in the body uh, of God's people, in the church, there's no distinction between races. There's no distinction between uh, gender. And there's no distinction between social groups, whether you're low on the social ladder or high on the social ladder. But together as the body, we are one family. And when we are called to come together to worship, we are to gather as one. Now this is the first day of the seventh month, we're told. Very special month in Israel's calendar. The first day of the month was called the Feast of Trumpets. And so this is the day on which the people are gathering and hearing the word of God read. Now on the 10th day of the seventh month, this was the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And then on the 15th day of the month, the Israelites would uh, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So again, a lot of special celebrations. And this is the first day, the first uh, feast that sort of uh, inaugurates or kickstarts this month of great many holy days. And so what better way to begin it than to gather together and hear the word of the Lord read. Now what impresses me about verse one is that we're not told that Ezra or Nehemiah gathered the people together to say, look, we're gonna read from the word of God. Instead, it says that the people told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. So it says they told Ezra the scribe to bring it. So it's the people who are saying, we want to hear from God. We want to hear God's word. What a great blessing that must be for leadership when they have a people who say, we want to hear from God. We want to be directed by God's word. Uh, we want his word to fill us up and to show us the direction that we should go. So it is indeed a wonderful event after we've had the restoration of the temple and the law and the rebuilding of the walls. The people have a hunger and a desire 
to hear what God wants to say. They want to continue this restoration movement. And they recognize in order to do that, it's going to only be accomplished through knowing and living out the word of God. Now in verse 2, we're told that uh, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So Ezra brings the law uh, in preparation to begin to read it. And of course, Ezra's not bringing a book like we are holding in our laps today, is he? He's bringing a scroll. And uh, if he's reading from several books of the law, he may have brought several scrolls with him. And he would have to unwind them uh, and read from them on his wooden platform that was built especially for this occasion. So the situation's a little different than it is for us today. Um, the people don't have the opportunity to have their own copies of the Bible, their own scriptures. Because in those days, there were a number of reasons why. First of all, uh, to own a copy of a scroll was actually very expensive, especially if it was a very large scroll, as of course the Law of Moses was. So for the ink and for the papyrus sheets and for the specialized training of a scribe who would, who would write it all out for all the materials necessary, a very expensive process. So the average individual would not own even a single book of the scripture, let alone all of the books of scripture. Secondly, if someone was wealthy enough to own all the books of scripture, remember, they're all on individual scrolls. So where are they gonna store them? They're gonna to have to have storage place somewhere uh, to contain all of these scrolls, which again, the average person wouldn't have that type of room in their living space. The third challenge is, even if they owned the scrolls, a lot of them couldn't read it, could they? Uh, illiteracy was much more widespread in the ancient world than it is today. And so this public reading of the word of God was extremely significant. It was an opportunity to hear the words of God, which they didn't get to hear every day. They didn't get to have a book in their house that they could pick up and access and read from. And so it's a very exciting time. We're going to get together and we're going to actually hear what the sacred scripture says. How exciting for them. And so they gathered together, as we, as we mentioned here, the whole community who could hear with understanding. And it reminds me a bit of what the law of God itself actually says. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses had charged the people um, saying the following. Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets for your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, etc., so the word of God was something that was constantly to be before the people and parents had that responsibility of sharing with their children at every moment of opportunity, whether you're lying down or waking up or walking together on the way, um, the Lord says, 
share my word. Well, to share God's word, and if you can't read God's word every day, then you have to have teachers who are available to read that word to you and to teach you what that word says so that you can then impart it to your children and others around you. So this is what they're doing here uh, in verses 1 and 2. So the importance of the community of God's people gathering together to hear the word. It leads us to the next section, which I've entitled The Reverence for God's Word in verses 3 through 7, because in this section of Scripture, there is a lot of emphasis on the worship of the people and on uh, their response to uh, the Word of God. And I think this is really significant for us to hear today. There is this temptation in the Western world, at least today, in church. You know, we have all these celebrity pastors and we have a lot of these celebrity worship leaders and things like that. And there can be a tendency to gather together in church almost as if it's more of an entertainment session than it is a worship session. We come to hear the worship music and almost like it's a concert. You know, maybe we go home and we critique how good the worship was this morning. Or we hear the, the pastor speak. And maybe we're like some of the movie critics who go to watch certain movies with certain actors and they critique those. Well, that movie wasn't as good as his last one. He had a much better performance the time before. And we go home and we go, well, the pastor was pretty good today, you know, but he really wasn't up to par like he was last week. And if we're not careful, we can sort of turn uh, worship into a spectator uh, experience. Uh, where we're, rather than participating in the worship, we're critiquing it and we're acting like we're the audience and the actors are up here on the stage, you know, going through the various motions for us. So the beautiful thing that we're going to see as we go through these verses, uh, this emphasis on the community of God's people is going to work itself out by various ways in which it shows them participating in this worship experience with God. And of course, this is what we want. We don't want to come on Sunday mornings and simply tick off a, a checklist. Uh, okay, well, we sang those songs, uh, we said a prayer, uh, we had coffee time, we, we heard a message, and we tick each box and we go home and we say, well, I've done church for the week. Uh, if that's our motivation, if that's our attitude, and we really haven't worshipped, have we? And we really haven't brought honor and glory to God through that experience. So worship is something in which we are all called to participate in. So I'll kind of point some of those things out as we go through these verses. And these verses don't have an exhaustive list of how we can participate in worship, but they do give us uh, a few things. So in verse 3, uh, then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Notice we have this emphasis again before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand, again, I'm not going to read all the names, but we have all these fellows, and we'll talk about why they're up there on the platform with Ezra in just a moment. So verse five, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then we have another list of guys who are doing something else. They're identified here as Levites, and it says the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So let's go back through these verses. Uh, I, I want to point out here in verse 3 that one of the first things we're told is that the people were meeting in an open square in front of the water gate. Now, this is the second mention we have. If you go back to verse 1, it talks about how the people met in the water gate, in the open square. Why does the uh, inspired author feel the need to mention that several times? Well, uh, I think there's possibly a couple of significances to it. First of all, when we think of a worship service or we think of people gathering together to hear the word, uh, we're probably thinking of a holy place where they meet. Like we may imagine in our minds that they're here in front of the temple, gathered together as God's people to worship and to hear the word read to them. But actually, what we're told is, no, they're not at the temple at all. They're at the water gate. Now, where would that be? Well, that would be lower in the city down where the water source of Jerusalem was, which if you've uh, ever been to Jerusalem or done any reading or study on it, you know that the water source of Jerusalem is the Gion Spring. And so that's further down the mountain. This is where the water gate would be. Now, what's significant about the water gate? Well, okay, this can be very profound, but it's where people go to get water, <laughs> right? Okay, so it's a very public place. It's the place that everyone in the city has to come to. And this open square is a place that everyone has to travel through. And so it's also then going to be a place where people are going to share the news of the day. They're going to stop and pause and chat with their neighbors uh, and talk about what's going on in their lives. And so it's a very uh, public open place. I find that really fascinating that this is where they choose to read the word of the Lord. Now, Let's say that reading the Bible in church is a great thing, right? But it's not the only place that we can read the scripture. And this declaration of the word of God being read in the public square suggests to me that the word of God is very relevant to people's everyday lives. It's not just to be cooped up in a church building and to run through a, a few religious rituals and hear the word of God being read and then go about your daily lives but no, it's about how the Word of God intersects with our public personas. Uh, and as we go about our daily walks, the Word of God should inform how we walk. And this is a very important message, I think, for us today, because uh, especially I would say that um, uh, the younger generation and maybe even the generation above them uh, sadly often see the Bible as something that's totally irrelevant to their daily life today. And church even is something that's totally, totally irrelevant. Uh, a bunch of strange rituals done by a bunch of strange people in this little building or whatever, you know, is the conception of many. And it's important that we as believers who know the power of the word show how the power of that word applies in transforming our lives and in guiding our lives. So hearing the word proclaimed in a public place, I think is very significant. Jesus told his disciples, you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. 
And Paul talks about the washing of water with the word. And so perhaps this idea of meeting at the water gate also suggests this idea of cleansing or purifying that the word of God brings. So the people meet in front of the water gate and they're there, we're told, from the morning until midday. So midday is roughly around noontime, right? Uh, morning, maybe six, seven o'clock. So the people have been standing, hearing the word of God for about five hours. Can you imagine? This really suggests how hungry and eager they are to hear God's word. I don't know about you, but if I've, if I've stood for an hour, I'm pretty exhausted. <laughs> I'm ready to sit down, you know? But it just testifies to their desire to want to hear. No, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stand right here because the precious words of God are being read. Now, this is probably roughly around the end of September. Maybe it's a little cooler than Israel in the summertime, but if you've ever been to Israel at the end of September, it's still pretty hot, okay? And so we're talking five hours uh, in the sun, standing to hear God's word. Now, this is one of the ways also, then, that the people show reverence for, the, for God and for his word. They stand in the heat to hear God's word. It also says that the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So this is really, really crucial. In other words, they're not just hearing the words being said while they're thinking about what they're going to have for lunch that day or what's going to be happening later on in the afternoon. Their ears are attentive. And this is a way, a very important way, that we all participate in worshiping and honoring God. When our ears are attentive to his word. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Hebrew, the idea of listening also combines the idea of obeying. Because if you hear something, then it naturally means that you should do it. We use the word similarly today. If uh, when we were growing up, our mom said to us, you know, don't, don't eat those chocolate chip cookies that are on the counter. And uh, maybe an hour later, she finds us sneaking into the kitchen to grab one. And she says, didn't you hear what I said? Well, she knows we heard what she said. What she means is, since you did hear, why aren't you obeying? Because hearing, true hearing, is always connected with obedience. So the people are listening attentively, which means they're not only eager to soak in God's word, but they want to get instruction from God's word and how it should direct and guide their lives. So we're told in verse 4 that Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood made for that purpose. Here's another way in which people participate in the worship of God. If, if Ezra was going to stand up and read before the people, he needed to be elevated so that his voice could project, and he needed a place to lay out the scrolls. And so some of the skilled people uh, in the body of uh, the Lord's people here, they built a podium that he could stand on. We have, we have carpenters and uh, all types of, of different types of uh, contractors and construction workers in, in the body of Christ. And one of the ways that they can contribute greatly to the Lord's work is by using the God-given gifts that they've been given. 
Uh, so never think, well, I'm, I'm just a carpenter or uh, I'm just the guy who sets up the tables or sets up the chairs or the sound equipment. You are participating in the worship of God by helping to produce an environment that is conducive to the body being able to worship. So this is yet another way in which the people of God participate. In verse 4, then, we, we come to this list of names, and there's 13 here. Um, some are on the left of Ezra, and some are on the right. Well, what are these guys doing standing up on the podium? Well, imagine reading for five hours. Pretty challenging thing to do, especially if you don't have any microphones and you're having to project your voice to a large crowd. So these other men are probably up on the podium to take turns reading from portions of the law. Now, these men aren't designated as Levites. The later group is designated as Levites, but we're just given the names of these men. So it suggests that they are drawn from among the people, probably people who are, are recognized as, as leaders in the community. But they stand up and they participate in the reading of the word. And so even though Ezra, we're going to learn, has special training in the law of God, the, the, the proclaiming of the word of God isn't simply for those who are well-trained, but it's also for others among God's people to be involved in the sharing of the word. Uh, I want to come down to verse 6. There we're told that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. We see the people being responsive in the worship. So as Ezra blesses God, they respond with Amen. And then they we're told that they lift their hands, uh, they bow their heads with their faces to the ground and worship the Lord. And so there's actually both verbal and physical expressions involved in worshiping the Lord. Another way in which we are not just merely spectators, but we participate in the worship. Now, my mom lives in Florida, and she goes to this Baptist church in Florida, and I just love going to this church, because the pastor's really great, and he really proclaims the word of God. He's one of these hand clapping, pounding the pulpit, stomping the pulpit. He will keep your attention. And one of the things that he does is he's always saying, can I get an amen for that? And, you know, if, if he says something that he knows from the word of God, he'll bend his ear like this, like, can I get an amen? Uh, and that is the amen in this church uh, that I have ever experienced. And it just reminds me of this passage here. Now, of course, you could become very ritualistic about it. I've actually been in some churches where, uh, where they do the amening, and the pastor purposely says something wrong to see if people are actually paying attention, okay? And then they amen some heretical doctrine, and he's got them, all right? So, you know, we don't... Uh, we wouldn't want to get caught in a rut about this because here's the point, that if you're going to amen something, then you need to know what was actually said so that you are in agreement with it. So the amen here shows that the people are attentively listening as we spoke about before. Now, in verse 7, we're given the list of a group of Levites. And we're told that these people are out, these Levites, they're out among the people to help them understand the law. Okay, so our next point in the message, number three, 
is the need for the interpretation of God's word. And we read in verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now we need to be reminded of the historical context here. This is following the exile, and these exiles had lived uh, for many years uh, in the lands of like Babylonia and Persia, that part of the world, uh, and they had grown up speaking a different language, the language of Aramaic. So when they returned to Jerusalem, many of them no longer know Hebrew. They may know certain words or phrases or expressions in Hebrew, but to hear the word of God being read in the original language, they're not catching everything that's going on. So what do they need? They need skilled uh, people who have been trained in the scriptures to be able to interpret and explain the scriptures to them. I love this passage because it talks about our need to receive instruction from those who have spent more time studying the word of God. I think of that story in Acts chapter 8. Verse, it begins in verse 29. It continues past verse 31. You have it on your outline there. But it's the story of Philip when uh, the Holy Spirit sends him to join up with an Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch is riding in his chariot, headed toward home. And uh, as they're riding, Philip hears that they are reading from Isaiah the prophet, chapter 53, that great servant song that prophesies uh, the sacrifice of the Lord. Now, how does Philip know they're reading from it? Well, they're reading it out loud, quite obviously, huh? because that's the way they did it in those times. So Philip asks this really important question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch's response is, how can I except someone guide me? We are all in need of guidance from time to time. Uh, some people are opposed to a, a deep study of the, of the word. They say, oh, that you know, that academic stuff, it'll cause you to lose your faith. It'll take you away from God, or you'll just become arrogant and act like a know-it-all. I can't deny that sometimes that happens in the academic world. It, it's true. But that's no reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, scripture shows us very clearly that we need skilled individuals who know the word of God and can explain it to others. Well, isn't the Holy Spirit enough for me? Obviously, we need the Holy Spirit when it comes to interpreting Scripture. But what if I have uh, an understanding of a passage, and you have a completely different understanding of the passage, and we both know we have the Holy Spirit? Then what do we do? We need to know how to approach the text, don't we? And we need to know the, the principles of, of sound Bible study and interpretation. And uh, that's what the people here are doing. Now, what I want you to notice is that as they read the law distinctly, we're told that these Levites are giving the sense and helping the people to understand the reading. So what's going on here is that the Levites have been trained in the original language. So they know the Hebrew language. And they are taking the Hebrew and they are bringing it over into the language of the everyday person so that they can understand it. Years ago, one of my professors told this story. He had a student who was just trying to give him a hard time. 
And uh, the student said, so, do I have to know Hebrew and Greek in order to be saved? To which my professor responded, well, of course you don't need to know Hebrew or Greek in order to be saved. But somebody does. Yeah? What would happen if we didn't have people who were trained in the original languages so that they could put the scriptures to us in our own language so that we can understand it? We need people like that, don't we? And one of the questions I've always asked is, what kind of people do we want uh, translating the Word of God for us? Do we want to leave it in the hands of liberal theologians who don't believe in God, who don't believe that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God? Or do we want to train up evangelicals who treasure the Word of God, who love God, who believe its precepts, and who know the original languages so that they can communicate the truth of God to the people of God? So we need skilled individuals in the Word to be able to teach all of us. Now, the final point this morning in verses 9 through 12. So this is responding properly to God's Word. It's not simply enough to hear it and to have it interpreted for us, but we need to understand it so that we can make the proper response. So Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and to rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. So as uh, Ezra and, and these other men are reading the law, and as the Levites are breaking it down for the people and helping them to understand it, uh, we see a wave of sorrow sweep over the crowd that is gathered there. And people begin to mourn and they begin to weep as they hear the word of God. Why is that? Probably because they're beginning to realize how far short they fall of God's word. And isn't that a normal reaction for all of us? We know that we don't live up to everything that's in the scriptures. And so this, this sense of uh, guilt and shame, uh, this sense of unworthiness can sweep over all of us when we are confronted with what the Word of God says. But here, the Levites and Ezra and the leaders, they're trying to say, no, 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 you're, you're misunderstanding. We, we are not bringing the Word of God to you today uh, to cause you to mourn, to beat yourself up and tell you what horrible people you are. We are bringing the word of God to you because the word of God is a source of life. And we want you to be filled with the joy that comes from receiving the wisdom and the knowledge that God imparts through his word. Many years ago, when I was a young pastor, many years ago, <laughs> um, I was in a different church. It wasn't Calvary Chapel. 
So it was a different denomination. And one of the practices that we had is that the pastor would always go to the back of the church by the door and greet everyone as they left. And, you know, people would say, oh, good message or terrible message, or, you know, they'd have a word for you or want you to pray for them. And so, you know, you'd do that every Sunday. And one Sunday morning, um, I had a, an older lady in the, in the church come up to me, shaking my hand very vigorously. And she said, that was such a good message. She said, I get so tired of all those sermons that are about love, love, love. And I thought, what did she hear me teach? <laughs> did, did I teach something? Was I, you know, was I trying to say God is not love or we shouldn't love? You know, what did she hear? Well, I'm hoping that she misheard me uh, because it certainly wasn't my intention to communicate that message. And so as Ezra and the uh, other guys are reading out the word and as the Levites are interpreting it, the people, they're hearing, but they're responding inappropriately to the word. And so the leadership has to come around and say, no, 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 that's not the point. That's not what we're trying to get at here, you know. We're not trying to beat you up and convict you of your sin. We're trying to bring you into a state of rejoicing uh, before the Lord. And so they, they, they have to, again, re-explain the purpose of what they're doing. So again, it's so important that we communicate the word of God clearly. And if we see an inappropriate response that we lovingly uh, correct and, and try to say what it was we were actually trying to communicate. Um, in this passage of scripture, we, we have this very famous statement that I'm sure most, if not all of us are familiar with, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is really a key expression here. And it's also an interesting expression. Um, first of all, the joy of the Lord, that's sort of an ambiguous phrase because it can mean one of two things. The joy of the Lord, is that the joy that I find from the Lord? Or is it the Lord's joy that's being talked about? So it can mean one or the other. And looking at the context here, I'm going to suggest to you in a moment what, which one I think uh, it means. But before we do that, this word that's translated strength in our English Bibles, in most other places in Scripture, this word is translated as fortress uh, or stronghold or refuge. So the joy of the Lord is your fortress. Hmm. What exactly does that mean? So the leaders here, they're trying to encourage the people with this statement. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. What are they saying? Well, first of all, um, what, what kind of joy are we talking about? Is it the joy we get from the Lord or is it the joy that is the Lord's? And to answer that question, uh, I think the context suggests uh, which way to interpret it, but uh, a good passage to look at is over in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. So let me read to you Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So the Lord your God in your midst, 
As the people of God gather together as one to worship and praise the Lord, what happens? The Lord is made full of joy and he rejoices over his people and he sings over them with great joy. So in my understanding of this expression, the joy of the Lord is actually the Lord's joy, okay? And so we could translate it, the Lord's joy is your stronghold or your fortress. How does that encourage the people? They're mourning, they're weeping, they're all upset because they realize they don't live up to the word of God. But the leaders say, no, 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 that's, that's not what's being communicated here. Don't beat yourself up because understand the very fact that you're here worshiping the Lord and that you're sensitive to hearing his word God is in your midst. He's singing over you with joy. It's bringing him great joy. And that should be a fortress to you. So when the enemy comes and attacks you and says, you're not good enough, you don't live up to this word, you don't even deserve to be hearing this word, you can respond, hey, the Lord's joy is my fortress. In other words, if the Lord finds joy in me in spite of my shortcomings, that's my stronghold. I don't have to worry about beating myself up and feeling guilty over things. God is rejoicing over me. And so as a result, once I understand the joy that the Lord has for me, then the natural response is to rejoice before the Lord. And so the people tell them it's not a day for sorrow or mourning. Uh, we want you to rejoice. In fact, we want you to eat and drink and send gifts and just enjoy yourselves and celebrate the day and celebrate the Lord. I like this idea of eating and drinking and celebrating um, because there are many places in Scripture that suggest, for instance, um, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, I ate your words, and they were a joy and a delight to my heart. And the psalmist talks in Psalm chapter 19, verse 8, how he desires the law of the Lord and how it is, you know, the joy of his heart. And uh, so this, this idea of eating not only communicates that the people are getting full physically, but they have been filled up with the word of God. And so their physical fullness is an outward expression of the spiritual fullness that they have received. The word of God is true meat indeed, right? It's true drink indeed. And so as the people have been fed and as they've drunk of the word of God, now they can go forth rejoicing and celebrating God's goodness to them and actually fill themselves up physically as well. And haven't God's people always been good at doing that? It's hard to get you guys away from coffee time and fellowship, right? because you're rejoicing in one another or encouraging one another and you're, you're having some coffee or tea and eating some cakes and it's a great time together because the sharing of food together is a way of communing and a way of fellowship. And God wants his people to have that, that oneness that is expressed through fellowship. Eating is one of the best ways we as human beings do that. And so just summarizing then, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. It's a great passage in showing us really how we should do church, right? It's a great passage telling us about the value of God's word, how we as worshipers are to participate in that worship. 
Uh, it's a great passage uh, showing us that we are in need of instruction from God's word and that that instruction should fill us up and bring us great joy. We have a light that the world out there doesn't have, right? We know a mercy and a grace and a love that the world out there doesn't know. And how do we know it? Through this precious book, the Word of God. Let's treasure it. Let's not take it for granted. And let's remember the exhortation from this passage today that restoration comes through oneness and through the Word. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you so much for your instruction today from your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the unity and the oneness that you have brought to all believers. We can go anywhere in the world, Lord, and meet a true believer and feel that unity and that oneness. And that oneness is found in what you've done through the cross and the resurrection and through the precious word that you have left to your people. Lord, may we never take it for granted. Here in the West, we have just such ready access to the word. And when something is so easily available, we often find ourselves ignoring it. Where in other places where the word is scarce, they hunger for it, they desire it. It's such a treasure to them. May we not take your word for granted, Lord. May we allow your word to bring that restoration about in our lives, that, that work that you desire to do. And Lord, we give you the honor and the glory this morning. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.